Welcome to the Sales Management Podcast, your source for actionable sales strategies and tactics. I'm your host, Coach CRM co-founder, Corey Bray. No long intros, no long ads. Let's go. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Devin Williams, the VP of Sales at Instabug. And we're going to be talking about a topic that's very relevant to him right now, the first 90 days as a new VP of sales at a new company. So if you're somebody out there that's taking this role, that's considering this role or hiring for this role, we wanted to provide some insight into what he's thinking about as he transitions into a new business and a sales leadership role. Devin, thanks for joining me. Corey, I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Uh, this is a really fun and also privileged journey that I'm on. And I'm happy to share some of the lessons learned, the uh, you know bruised knees and the skin toes, as they say, and maybe others can avoid some of those pitfalls. But I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I love it. I love it. Well, let's jump into it. I think the first thing I want to dig into is just what's top of mind for you. I don't want to guide you in any specific direction. We'll have some different areas that we, that we dig into, but you're coming into this new company. You're taking over a team. You've got people below you, above you, around you influence all of these different things that are going on. What's what's top of mind for you as you step into this role? Well, I think that's the biggest challenge, Corey, is there's so much. And how do you prioritize, right? What's urgent versus important, right? The Eisenhower matrix, which has been a lifesaver for me. There's so much that you need to throw into that matrix and very quickly and accurately figure out what's urgent versus important. And so one of the things that, that I've learned from mentors and I applied heavily in this process was in the due diligence phase, you're almost acting like you're working for the company and you're starting to already pick apart what are those urgent versus important items? What do I need to delegate? What can wait for later? So that when you come in the door, you're not spending weeks or sometimes months just trying to navigate all of that. You've got a really good signal on where you need to focus and why. And oh, by the way, that should align to your decision criteria for why you joined the company to begin with. Because you know the things that are urgent and important are things that I can immediately action and add value to. So like as an example, when I joined Instabug, we did a bit of a reset around go-to-market. Um, there was a big shift from a product-led growth organization to a desire to go after really large Fortune 500 enterprise land and expand deals. And there was a team of very talented people, but they were hired and developed around the product-led growth motion, not to be enterprise big whale hunters. And so obviously some things didn't work out and we needed to do a bit of a reset, which is, which is very difficult, which is very painful. But what that meant, one of the immediate urgencies for this person was to hire top talent very, very quickly. So one of my decision criteria joining Instabug was I want an opportunity to bring some of the best and brightest along with me very quickly and get moving fast. So what did that create? Created a win-win, right? So that what you've asked is the big problem. Lots of things going there's on. There's too much to try and you are only one person, Right. And so, you know, you're thinking about, you're thinking about hiring, you're thinking about what are the comp plans currently like today? What type of valuation are we growing into that valuation or what type of, what type of uh, land do we need to cover? Right. And how quickly, um, you know, what, what is the product market fit and how do we need to tweak our messaging and our go-to-market? Do we have the right personas? How are we doing in marketing? What does our inbound and outbound lead flow look like? Our sales capacity, I mean, there are so many things. And I think the big challenge, especially if you're joining like, like myself, a Series B, fast-growing, like high-trajectory company, is you have to live in both the what needs to happen today, right now, 
and what we need to begin developing for the future. And you can't over rotate to one or the other, because if I don't do what needs to happen today, there is no future. Right. And if I over rotate on the future, I'm not doing what needs to happen today to actually create that future. And so it's business can't stop just while you're building for the future, right? You've got to operate today and continue to put points on the board. So I think that's the big challenge, Corey, right? To your, you're such, it's such a wide open and it's a great question. There are so many things and there is a very fine balance that needs to be achieved. That I think is the biggest struggle. And I know I was lucky to have a lot of people to be in some executive positions in the past myself that helped me prepare for this a bit. But I think a lot of people, they have trouble saying no. They see all of these things that they need to go and tackle and they try and do all of it at once by themselves. Yeah. Invariably, I think we all know that's a recipe for disaster. Huge disaster. Let's let's hear a specific example in this case. So what's a specific example of something that was very tempting to spend time on? And you said, wait a second, that's important, but it's not urgent. I'm going to put that in that other quadrant of the Eisenhower matrix. And I love that you call it the Eisenhower matrix, not the guy that wrote the book and took it from him. And I'm not going to say his name, but you know who I'm talking about. Yes. Yes. No, I'm, I'm a voracious reader and try and give credit where credit is due as much as humanly possible. But yeah, you know, there, there were a lot when, when I was joining, um, you know, both of the founders still have a controlling interest in the company. And that was one of the things that really attracted me, right? They built a profitable business. They are clearly successful in running and operating this company, but they've made the decision they want to pour some gas on the fire, right? But they're not out there like the past decade, just pouring unlimited amounts of gasoline. Like it's very measured. It's very thoughtful, right? And that's why they're running a profitable business. And so there were a lot of discussions about, you know, kind of this concept of like buying ahead of value of, hey, we haven't quite seen the momentum or the signal. And hey, Devin, I know that you want to go ahead and get ahead of this, but let's give it a minute and see some of these things work out and show value and show momentum before we do it. So a lot of, for me, was I I always say, like, I play 3D chess. I try and think a lot of moves ahead. And so while we were dealing with a pretty severe PG for a pipeline gen problem, with turning over the sales staff, changing the go-to-market, and oh, by the way, you may or may not have heard there are some interesting macroeconomic conditions out there right now. There's a couple of them. There's a few. So we've got this big PG problem, yeah. right? And, and at the same time, I'm starting to think about who are my senior leader hires going to be, right? What are my territories going to look like next fiscal year? How am I going to segment the business? Am I going to hire somebody in the UK or in Asia Pac? Right? What's our BDR ratio to AE ratio going to look like as we scale? Which that could be a whole day to do the math and look at historical data and do a market study. That 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 right there could just be an entire day where you get nothing else done. Right. And is it is that important? Absolutely. But back to my point earlier, like. If we don't build the run rate of a business to support that growth and that capacity, none of that planning matters. Right. And so fortunately, I was very lucky to have a very soft letdown from my founders and CEO to say, Devin, we appreciate what you're focusing on, but we really need you to just help us get this PG engine moving. And was I spending calories on that? Like, absolutely. But the reality was I wasn't spending enough calories on that. And some of my calories were being split out. And so that was uh, not a complex to learn. It was a friendly conversation. But It was a friendly conversation. And I want to understand, what was your communication cadence to keep it friendly? Because if you were doing a quarterly check-in, I imagine it would not be a friendly conversation. It would be, what the hell have you been doing over there? Talk a little bit about transparency and communication with the founders in order to make sure that you're making those course corrections very quickly. So it continues to be a friendly and collegial conversation. Yeah. So that's one of my biggest pieces of of advice in the courting and interview process. And just in general, 
is just be abundantly transparent. Uh, it is going to, A, in the interview process, it's going to de-risk the odds of you landing at a company where expectations don't meet reality because you have created the expectation of extreme transparency and honesty. And in most cases, that's going to be reciprocated. So you're de-risking landing at a bad fit. And then what happens is you've set the expectation that I'm going to be very direct, upfront, and honest at all times, good, bad, or ugly, so that we can move forward. And instead of reading the news, we can make the news, as one of my favorite mentors always says, right? So I set that expectation with my founders in the interview process. So when I showed up and started being critical about certain things or being very honest that I don't have an answer for this, there wasn't any second guessing. It was, oh, Devin is just being super honest with us, very transparent, and we can do the same. So my founder checked in with me and said, hey, how are things going? We're a couple of weeks in. We're really excited about the upcoming SKO that you're going to be doing. Where are you spending time? Like, what are the things that you're really focused on and working on? And as I started to talk about, you know, hey, here are some things that are making me nervous about like capacity planning for next fiscal year and what our growth trajectory is going to look like. He, he didn't have any issues saying, Devin, whoa, 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 dude, super important. Obviously, we're going to talk about that all day. But what I haven't heard you talk enough about is how we're going to fix the pipeline problem. Yep. Right. Q3, Q4 looks good, but what about next year? Like, how are we going to fix that? And that by setting that expectation of mutual transparency, it allowed us to just cut through any of the noise and again, get past reading the news to making the news. And so I think, A, that's part of the culture here, which I sussed out and looked for. But I also would like to pat myself on the back, give myself a little bit of credit of I set that upfront expectation, which is huge huge in sales and life and career, right? Because there's a commitment. You you can only do this job with one one company. Somebody hilariously referred to sales leader jobs as Hollywood marriages. (laughs) Might last three weeks. They might last three years. Some of them might last forever. But the more transparent you are and the more collaborative you are, the more it looks like a traditional marriage and not Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love that metaphor. That's funny. Hollywood marriage. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So, and then the other analogy that comes to mind as you were talking was it's almost like instead of starting from the blocks in a hundred meter dash cold start, you're running the fourth leg of a relay and you're picking it up. It's a combination. It's a combination of where this organization that you're joining has been and where they're going as well as where you've been and where you're going. And you guys meet up while you're in forward motion, as opposed to just showing up on the first day with a pencil and a notepad and saying, all right, let's figure so figure out where to start. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a lot of situations like in friends, mentors, colleagues, where I've seen, you know, the whole trying to make the square peg fit into the round hole, right? Like, Hey, you're a great person. You're clearly a dedicated and experienced and tenured sales leader. We'd love to have you here, but ultimately like that person's unique set of skills that are microcosms of that more general statement about being a great sales leader who's highly experienced and tenured doesn't match with the critical needs of the business right now. And so you're trying to retrofit and things get weird and people are like, oh, wait, I thought I just assumed you knew how to do that. Why don't you? And it Again, another recipe for disaster. So that upfront transparency and that getting very clear very quickly before you've even started the job on what do you need? Why do you need it? Why do you need me to do it? That then sets as you enter in day one, like a very clear understanding and expectation. And that I think like that's allowed me to get an incredibly fast start here, right? I mean, we... In the last week of my first month, I led a mini SKO with our with our whole go-to-market go to staff, right? Love it. Less than 30 days in. 
And that's not because I worked 120 hours a week or I'm like incredibly special. It's that I got ahead of this. So when I started, I already knew the things that we were likely going to have to set the stage on and reset expectations on in the SKO. And it was about validating that hypothesis and gathering real-time data to go into that SKO, right? And so that, I mean, in most cases, that's something that somebody doesn't try to bite off until three, six, nine months into the gig. But we had to pull that forward. We had to act quickly and swiftly and with urgency. But what if I deliver an SKO that's just like wildly off base for what the sellers and the go-to-market staff needs? I lose all credibility. I lose all momentum. And we're actually moving backwards. Yeah, That's all because of the transparency and the head start to your point that I entered the race at the, at the anchor run of the relay. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And then you can, I also love the idea of less work. I think anytime someone's in a management role and they think they have to do more work, more work, more work. And the question is, is it something they've done before? Or is it something they're doing for the first time? And if you're doing a bunch of things for the first time, to your point, maybe you're taking on too much. And if there's a bunch of things that you've done before, then the question begs, are you actually good at it? Or is it something that should be delegated? And do you need to work on the delegation skills? Because a lot of times, if you can package it up in a nice little package and say, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this, you're sitting there. One of the most productive things, I think a physicist said this, one of the most productive things that senior leaders or people that are senior in the science world can do is stare out the window. Yeah. It's fascinating how much value comes from staring out the window and collecting your thoughts and reorganizing things. It's like refactoring your brain. You refactor code to make your machine go faster. You refactor your brain to make everything happen easier without as much work. Yeah. And I, I think I think that's where some of like this VP burnout death spiral comes from, right? Is this, I need to do it all. I need to be all things to all people at all times. I need to do it by myself because, hey, that's what they hired me for, right? Like I'm the guy or I'm the gal. They don't, nobody else knows how to do this. Nobody else can help me. Or it's an ego thing of I need to validate my existence by being the guy or the gal. And then you're just constantly chasing your tail and you're never having that chance to sit down and look out the window and just think, am I on the right path? Are we doing the right things? Do we need to reframe? Because you're just constantly in firefighting, first in, first out. You're burned out. You're not thinking at your best capacity and potential. You're not applying creative thinking and reflection time because everything is urgent. Everything is important. And I think one of the skills that becomes very important in this role that unfortunately a lot of folks don't learn is the ability to say no. Yeah. Like just because somebody asks for something doesn't mean it needs to be done at all, let alone right now. Right. Yeah. Or I agree with that hundred percent or to the degree that they think it needs to be done. It drives me mad when I talk. So I own two companies, a software company that works with teams on coaching and a consulting firm. And we've done a lot of sales enablement projects. It drives me nuts when people say, we're working on personas with product marketing, they'll be done in four months. Or we're doing a competitive study, it'll be done in six months. I say, okay, why don't we go interview all the salespeople, understand what they think today, and in two hours, we'll have an 80% done project. Because guess what? That's what they're doing today. So it's not going to be any worse than what they're doing. Actually, it's going to be substantially better because we'll get the wisdom of the crowd as opposed to each individual. And we can up-level the team literally by four o'clock today as opposed to waiting for this magical project. So I think the depth at which you go with all of this also dramatically impacts A, time to value, and then B, burnout. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're spot on. And that, you know, a saying comes to mind, perfect is the enemy of done. And I think that's another thing that a lot of first-time VPs fall into. And I only know this not because I'm this like old soul that's like speaking way above my rank. It's as being an investor, uh, being a part of a nonprofit that does a lot of networking, connecting, I've 
not only now find myself in the privileged position to be experiencing this, but I've also viewed this and heard this and seen this from other angles as well. And that inability to say no, but on top of it, the feeling that everything needs to be utterly perfect before it's shipped. I mean, that is just a killer. It's, uh, it's like deflating, it's soul wrenching. Um, and I, I think getting, finding a, a way to be comfortable respectfully and empathetically saying no, not now, not to that degree, not ever, like that is its own skill set that I, I would strongly encourage any person thinking about becoming a first time VP. Cultivate that skill before you take the job. Don't try and cultivate it while you're in the job because you're going to run into a lot of issues. I love that. All right, two directions that I want to go. I want to go down the no path a little bit and then I want to come to the investing piece because I know a lot of sales leaders are doing angel investment deals, or at least they did when, when things were hot last year. Yeah. On the no side, how do you get good at saying no without being a jerk? Yeah, um, you know, shameless plug. I am part of People First Professionals, which is a nonprofit focused on emotional intelligence development. And I think that ability to understand myself and to understand others and to um, communicate with empathy and understanding and appreciation, um, the introduction of like gratitude practices and self-love practice, like all of these things have come together along with just my 15 plus years of experience in the space to help me understand how to deliver that tough news or how to have that tough conversation. And one example of a pretty standard crucial conversation is the no, right? Is the I need to tell this person no. And having a methodology to prepare for that high stakes conversation, like Crucial Conversations is a great book or series if you want to go check out to get some more methodologies and best practices. But knowing how to prepare for that conversation and understanding the human condition and understanding human psychology and that person that's on the other side of the table or the screen, how they're feeling, why they want this thing done, why they even asked you to do this thing, that then influences how you tell that person no. Not ever, not now, not with the level of degree that you're asking, right? And so those investments have been incredibly helpful as a leader and navigating politics and tough conversations, which as much as we want to think aren't a part of the job, they are a big part of the job. And they can either be an overwhelming part of the job, or they can just be a necessary piece of the job that pops up here and there, right? And it's all about have you made investments to handle that piece of the role, which is the politics and the crucial conversations, right? And to your point, Corey, like if you've never had to handle politics before, if you've never had to have a crucial conversation before, then that's going to seem like a really heavy lift. If You're this is good something you are very you practiced in, yeah. no, it's you onto the next, not a big caloric output onto the next, Right. Um, so those investments have been super helpful. Definitely check out Crucial Conversations if you need some help, if you need a methodology. But more than anything, like understand the first thing, why would this person ask me to do this thing? Yeah. Start there. Start there. And right? do they even know what they're asking for? That's one, of the, that's one of the big pieces. Hey, I need a deck. I need a slide. I need a matrix. I need messaging. Well, the, the funny thing is when you ask someone the word why, it creates a defensive response. And if you want to create a defensive response, that's fine. If you're trying to get a prospect to defend why they'd work with you or why they'd select you over a competitor, that's, it's a tool to use as long as you know a fishing hook is sharp. Use it for bait and fish. Don't right. use it for your finger. Yes. <laughs> yes. So what to use the, the tool for, then, then that's good. And if you ask somebody, well, why do you want that? That can create an instant defensive response and start just escalating the resistance as opposed to starting to allay it. Yeah. So, so that same example, Corey, right. And you know, Hey, I need this report by 5 PM tomorrow. Why? Okay. Well now, now 
you're asking me to like defend my ask. And if I'm yeah. above you, maybe there's an ego thing there. If I'm below you, it's like, hey, aren't you supposed to help me? That you kind of put yourself in a tough position to your point, right? Very, very easily. Oh, wow. That that seems like a pretty quick turnaround. It sounds really urgent. What What's making this so urgent that we need to get this done? I'm just, I need to know because if I'm going to do it in that time frame, I'm going to have to deprioritize some other things. So I'm just trying to understand why we've got a 5 p.m. deadline tomorrow, right? That seems really urgent. Can you help me understand that instead of why? Like help me yeah. understand. And that's not how it might sound coming out of your mouth, but that's how it, why? Right. I don't want to scream into my microphone and break everybody's ears, but that's how I could, that's how I could hear. Okay. So getting really yeah. good around empathy, understanding, I heard some active listening there. That's yep. awesome. Now let's, let's dig into the other thing I put a pen in, which is the angel investing. Tell me how being an angel investor has made you a better sales leader. Oh my gosh, man. Um, so many ways. Uh, and that's why you're hearing this like long pause as I'm trying to think about how to tackle because there's so many answers to that question. I think, I think first and foremost, it's business acumen. It's business acumen. Now, I had a, I had a minor in finance as part of my, my undergrad degree, which really helped me understand how to read a 10K and a balance sheet and all of this. But being a part, being like an LP, right, in a group, you are constantly surrounded by highly successful, intellectual, business savvy people. And you just hear the way they converse, the things they talk about, right? And it, it just organically by osmosis raises your business acumen and your executive boardroom speak and stature. It also helps you understand that these are human beings too. These are not some people up on some altar in the heavens. Like these are human beings. Some have been really lucky. Some have been really smart. Some have been both. They make mistakes. They're fallible. They have desires and hopes and dreams and families and addictions like everybody else. And so for me, it really helped from a confidence standpoint of understanding this person is not better than me. They're not above me. And their title doesn't make them different than me. They're still a human with the dreams and the hopes and all those things I talked about. So that helped me put us on an evil, even playing field, right? Hearing the questions that executives ask around an investment really helped me as a seller, as a go-to-market leader on how you position business cases, right? How you show ROI, the difference between soft and hard dollar and how that matters, how to articulate productivity savings into business value, right? And what those people care about. It helped me prepare for objections prior to even meeting someone I have an idea. This is a CFO at a retail organization that's in the Fortune 1000 right now in this economy. I already know some of the objections they're going to have as I lead with a productivity tool. I already know. So I can prepare ahead of time. And even into the pipeline generation and the preparation of understanding a balance sheet, how to read a 10K, all of these things. And then the last, and maybe not enough talked about, the network. All of these organizations are incredibly networked. And even if you're, even if you're an LP in another fund, just knowing that I'm talking to another LP, there's like a level of like rapport and credibility that is almost instantly struck, right? This is a business savvy individual who's had enough success that they have discretionary income to make these types of investments. Here's and, they, and they choose to, and they've got enough savvy that they've realized that the construction of a portfolio that includes risk assets is, right. is, is a smart thing to do. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I would say the um, becoming an LP in an angel fund has been as eye-opening and beneficial to being a executive's uh, sales and go-to-market leader as being prospected into has. Wow. Which is another fascinating, like, other side of the table. 
you know, I wish I could go back to my BDR and AE days with what I know now, now that I, you know, I get about a hundred cold emails, LinkedIn messages a day. Hold up. Wait, yeah. say that. Oh yeah. 100 a day. That that's on the conservative side. If I include LinkedIn messages. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I've got to ask you this. I've got to ask you this. Cause I was, I was talking to some guys yesterday, I gave them some advice. I'll tell you what that is here in a second. Yeah. How much does personalization matter to you? as a receiver of an email in terms of driving velocity into doing business with you. Yeah. It, if there, if there's not something striking that keeps me reading, I'm not reading, right. It's, it, it just is. And so there's two ways to be striking and both of which are personalized knowing and speaking to my pain immediately or finding something really unique. That's personal to me. Right. Which one of those has bigger impact with you? Um, the the speaking to my pain. Got it. And if I speak to your to pain, me. and as a as a constructor of emails, I can speak to your pain, and your pain is the same as every, not every, many. If I solve three pain points for Series B sales leaders, probably only going to talk to people that have those three pain points, and so I can toss those out there. And not have to go research favorite sports team where you went to school presentation you gave at some conference last year. Right. So now that that personalization might help you get the open yeah. or get me to read long enough to actually see that you understand my pain. Right. And so there's kind of that balance. And that's why I always talk about PG as a numbers and a consistency game because every person is different. And like Corey, if you sent me an email this morning that's like somewhat personalized, but speaks to my pain. And I'm coming out of like three or four really high calorie meetings. Doesn't matter how good that email is. I'm not getting to it. That yeah. same email, you catch me in a little bit of a lull of the day. I'm going to read it, you know, and, and that's why that consistency and that varied approach of both messaging, personalization, and channel is the only way to survive right now in the, in the outbound prospecting game. It's so, so, somebody that, so flooded. As somebody that receives a lot of these messages and calls and things like that, what's something you've learned from a prospector over the last six months? Yeah. Um, be brief, right? Be brief, add value, be gone. Right. And uh, I've seen, yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot of really interesting, like where, you try and get aggressive and kind of challenge the person. Like, are you the right person for me to be talking to? I've, you know, we've seen these interesting breakup emails of like, are you stuck on a beach? Are you in an ambulance? Or does this not matter to you? Like you've seen all of these like gimmicky, the none tricks. of that, none of that tricks. it doesn't work. Don't do it. Don't bother at best, you're going to get ignored. At worst, you're going to get put in a penalty box. Be brief, add value, be gone. And yeah. then have confidence that with consistency, that message will make it to the right people at the right time and you will get a response, right? But all these gimmicks, all this instant gratification, like, oh, here's the other one. The, the hundred, I recently got an offer for AirPods, to take a discovery call. AirPods. How much AirPods. I, so you can see me. Everybody on the can't see me. I use the plug-in thing because I think AirPods send things to your brain that aren't good. Yeah. And my conspiracy theorist, maybe, but I'm curious how my point is I don't know how much AirPods cost. Is that like a two hundred dollar thing, three hundred dollars? Two fifty, yeah. Like so someone I mean, gave, give you give you two hundred and fifty dollars to talk to them. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Did you and guess it? what? It went the opposite direction. What did you, what like you, you, are, you reek of desperation breath. If that's yeah. what your company's willing to do to get a meeting, I, nope. You know, and, and so my point is like, lay off the gimmicks, add value, be confident in what you do, be confident in the research that you've done and that you're at the right person with the right message. The right time will happen with your consistency. But all these gimmicks and all this other stuff, it only hurts you. It only hurts you. It's like fishing. If you try to use dynamite, you ruin the ecosystem for everybody else. Yeah. Just and that was something that I learned through, through some bad examples and some good examples that, you know, 
brought me back to like my days starting my career as a BDR where I might try something a little bit gimmicky. And now I actually like, I thought I had empathy, but now I've truly been on the other side and I've been on the receiving end and I know what that looks and feels like. Other people might interpret it slightly differently. I'm sure there's people listening like, Devin, you're a freaking idiot. Take the AirPods. But like, for me, that was a turnoff. Yeah. And that's my point. Everybody's different. But I think in general, what you would find if you pulled the public, lay off the gimmicks, add value, be brief, be gone. Love that. Let's talk about the investing side from what you've learned from founders, positive and negative. You watch these people from afar, maybe some of them you're closer to. I'm curious what you see people get right and screw up when it comes to sales leadership. Yeah. Um, I think the one of the biggest failures I've seen is derived from ego. Ego. Now, I understand, you know, like take my founders for an example at Instabug. You know, they they built this company for the past 10 years. It's all they've really known. Uh, in like a corporate professional setting. Um, they've had incredible success, you know, multi-million dollar run rates, um, highly profitable business, world-class net dollar retention. Uh, and they made the decision, like, we want to grow the company. We're going to take on some additional investment and funding. And with that, we're going to start to scale our go-to-market organization. Now, Neither of them have been a professional salesperson, not like in the same way, Corey, you and I are conversing today, but we would all argue being a CEO and an entrepreneur, you really are a salesperson. Well, you, the funny thing is when you're, when you're CEO, you have advantages, you have yeah. privileges. So my, I was talking to a private equity guy the other day and he said, yeah, one of the challenges we have with, with this portfolio company is the CEO doesn't recognize his country club privilege. And I was like, what's country club privilege? He says he can invite prospect to the country club and play golf and buy him a steak and the prospect will buy from him. And the account executive that he hired can't do any of those things. Right. And it also can't change the product offering or reconfigure things like that. So you've got this, this weird world where the founders can do that. They can also in, in software world, they can change the product. They can make over commitments to engineering that the sales team can't. So it's a completely different world, which often leads to frustration on the founder's side because we're sitting here saying, well, do it like me. And they don't have the same ability. You just literally can't make all of those commitments and, and, and changes. And I think that if you layer arrogance on top of that, that becomes a really bad situation. Yeah. And I think arrogance is even a better operative word. You know, it's uh I've seen a lot of founders um, who have this weird attachment to an IPO. Like I've failed as a founder if we don't have a successful IPO. And that, what do you think that does? That drives their behavior and their decision-making and they take on bad funding and sign up for awful multiples and valuations that they can never live up to, you know? And, um, you know, people who are so they're so close to the product because it's their baby. Yeah. The, you know, the saying, they can't see the forest for the trees and they can't, they can't have that tough conversation of like, I know you love this part of the product and you want to keep investing in it, but I'm trying to tell you that clients don't care. This doesn't matter to them. Right. Like if somebody is so attached to that, that is a huge concern. And so what, for me in the interview process, what I was looking for is replace ego with curiosity. Like gen, even if it's challenging, I'm okay being challenged. If you're not trying to like just box me in and trap me, but it's genuinely, I am curious. You are teaching me something new and I want to know more. Dude, I can do that all day long. And that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about Omar and Mo uh, at Instabug is like, they're genuinely curious and they, you know, you should have seen Omar at our sales kickoff, like sitting in the back, taking all of these notes, like, oh, that's great. Genuinely curious as to what we were talking about so that he could try and do these things as well. Right. And bring these, all these best practices into the fold. So prioritize curiosity, like genuine curiosity, a desire to get better 
over this infallible bulletproof ego, that all sounds and looks really sexy from afar. Trust me, I've been lured by it as well. But when you get close and you see the decision-making and the behavior that surrounds an orbit of ego and this infallible bulletproofness, it's actually really awful. It's terrifying. It's not fun to be around. So focus on curiosity. Focus on curiosity would be my advice. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the emotional commitment to the product is dangerous. Yeah. That's one of the things that that we decided when we started this business. I, I always tell people, I say, I don't care what the product does. I truly don't. Feature, delete it. That's fine. Don't care. Because I've seen these guys that go out there and they they pave the cow path. And that yeah. didn't work. And so they decide to coat the paved cow path in gold. Yep. Doesn't work. And all of a sudden, you've got all these features. And the only way... It's hard if, if they've got the commitment to it. I mean, one way is if you get the product analytics tight. I mean, I knew these one guys that wouldn't even put product analytics in the product. They'd say, yeah. fine, we know how many people log in. It's like, well, how many people use the screen? They use it. But if you get the product analytics in there, as we say in basketball, ball don't lie. Right. All of a sudden you can see, well, nobody's literally clicked on that button for 30 days. And the button is taking up real estate. Do we need the button? Then then that becomes, and I think that this is, this is something I want to I get to is, I think, and love your take on this, the best sales enablement you could possibly have is a head of product that truly understands the problems that you're trying to solve and what could be solved in the future. Curious your take on that. Yeah, I, I very much agree. Um, I'm fortunate to have a head of product here who is very interested to be a part of the go-to-market conversation. Um, he's heavily involved in pricing in our lead funnel and our product-led growth process. Uh, he's been instrumental in the development of our ICP framework that we're now leveraging around marketing and go-to-market. And yeah, I we had we had him lead an entire like ICP persona differentiation session in SKO. Um, and so if you can you can find those product leaders that are truly in tune, not myopically with the product, but with the people that the product is purpose built to serve. That is, that's gold. Like it's much more rare than any of us would like to admit. A lot of these product leaders are myopically focused on the product and it's made them successful to a degree. But I would argue have a true understanding an obsession with the people that you're designing the product to serve. And that will better support value and the product than just having this obsessive focus on the product itself. Because very quickly, you can start developing features and functions that aren't actually serving the client, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think what you said there is like real well said, and it's a good point, Corey. So if you see the product team going down the wrong path, Here's politics to play as a sales leader. How do you manage that situation? Yeah, I think it's, again, um, approaching with empathy, like why asking yourself, like, why would a reasonable, logical person? Oh, so you're making, oh, I love down. this. So you're making these assumptions. So you're assuming that they are reasonable. And I think that's a flaw that folks have. And it's probably because people watch reality TV. Yeah. Yeah. If you assume that people are reasonable and logical, Man, that just, it, it shapes your mindset in such a great way. Yeah. So assume the best, right? These are reasonable, logical human beings. Like, why would they want to do this? Start to craft your own hypothesis. Have the mental flexibility to accept that maybe your hypothesis is flawed and be very curious in your understanding, right? The old Seek to understand before you speak to be understood. I think a lot of times people lead by speaking to be understood without truly understanding the situation. And that's where feathers get ruffled and people get upset and there's misunderstandings and misinterpretations. Like instead, hey, that's really interesting. Um, what, what are you seeing? What are you hearing from clients? Like what, what helped us come to this informed decision 
that this is going to be the focus for the next release, or this is what we're going to anchor the next roadmap feature on. Like, just want to understand like how that's servicing and be genuine. Like my job as a sales leader is to drive value to our end customers through our products by leveraging go-to-market and the salespeople and all the other instruments that we have to get in front of clients. And so if you are head of product or our product leaders who know the space and the persona and the product better than anyone on the planet are saying, this is a priority, well, shit, I want to understand that because it must be really freaking important. Yeah. So help me understand why this is such a priority now. Again, urgence, importance. Help me understand that because if you're seeing it that way, then shit, I got to, I got to pick up my game and I, I got to get speed quickly. And, and then as you and your team scenario, starts- your flawed assumptions are proven wrong and your product leaders on the right path and you go and support them. Other case scenario You've approached the conversation with curiosity and empathy. You've created a safe and disarming environment. And now you and your product leader are developing rapport with one another and brainstorming together on the same side of the table on what might be the best approach versus creating a combatant. That's great. That's great. I love that. We got to wrap in a few, but I want to, I want to dig into one more point and that's how do you create a operating rhythm with the product leader over time? So you're able to feed them what's important. You're able to feed them what's urgent, but at the same time, you're not overwhelming them and putting them in that same position that many sales leaders get into, which is they've got all this stuff and it's hard to prioritize. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, there are different opportunities to get products involved that maybe traditionally they're not. Um, you know, for a smaller sales organization like we have, uh, having product be a part of the quarterly quarterly business reviews, having product being a part of our executive forecast roll-ups, right? Basically, opportunities for product to hear aggregated stories from the street right? What's actually moving the needle? What actually matters? What's making a difference, right? Those are, I think those are opportunities just to create this ongoing cadence. Then obviously you should be having regular one-on-ones between you and your product leader. Um, But I, I think getting them ingrained into what you're doing and having them hear real time feedback from the go to market teams, as well as the customers is incredibly important Um, getting them into customer facing meetings, right? Like, Hey, we got a real big one, fortune 100, big target. We're going after instead of having one of our SCs do the roadmap presentation, we'd love to have you do a lunch and learn on the roadmap. And here's some Q and a from the horse's mouth instead of interpretation of what they had told the SE. That's right. That's right. And raise some red flags. If you're, heads of product aren't already doing that themselves to a degree, or at a minimum, aren't super excited for the opportunity to participate in those discussions, because then you may be in that scenario where you've got that myopic product focused person that isn't actually hearing the voice of the customer. Yeah, that's good. And then in the spirit of this is another thing that you've you've harped on, which is the sales leader shouldn't feel like it's their job to do everything. How do you leverage sales enablement in this case? It sounds like a good use case to help support that connection between product sales, sales engineering. And my my fear is that for the last several years, enablement teams have been drugged so far into onboarding and sales development and SMBAEs and things like this. Working with product sales, sales engineering, and customer success as that glue, that's a much higher level, much bigger impact role for the enablement team. What do you see their role there being? Yeah, I when I've seen enablement and revenue operations being really closely aligned, if not reporting into the same organization, is when I've seen it been the most successful. Because, you know, then sales enablement is not just getting anecdotal feedback from like call recordings and QVRs and things like that, but they're also getting data in backed things and information and 
being able to blend the anecdotal with the truly quantitative and pulling all of that together, like that, that is when I've seen sales enablement be really put in a position to be successful and strategic and proactive when they are typically relegated into like an onboarding. In most cases, that's them being told, hey, we need to focus on this. We need to focus on that. Our sellers are too slow to adopt this. But when you put them in a position to think strategically and to combine anecdotal and holistic data together and then give them the autonomy to say, hey, what are all the things you're observing versus what is the data telling us? Help us make a decision on what's going to move the needle the most for the largest percentage. That's when I've seen sales enablement really be able to add tons and tons of value. Love that. Very good. Well, Devin, thanks for joining us today. Is there anything that you want to plug or any way that you want folks to reach out to you if they like what they heard? Yeah, I mean, honestly, again, as I mentioned, Corey, thank you for having the opportunity. Uh, you know, please, if any of some of the, the emotional intelligence, the thoughtfulness, the mindfulness, the intentionality, like if any of those things run through and you feel like that's an area that you want to develop, check out peoplefirstprofessionals.org. Um, it's my side hustle, love child, uh, and it means so, so much to me, and it's meant so, so much to me in my career. And I think many of you will find the same. So definitely check out there. But otherwise, uh, Corey, this has been a great conversation and I appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully we added value to a few folks out there. I love it. I would not be surprised. We added a lot of value given your wisdom here. This was awesome. If your team is struggling to hit their goals, if you're concerned that your managers aren't getting the most out of their folks, if you're anxious about the level of coaching, the quality of coaching, the frequency of coaching that's going on across the org, and you want to up-level that, reach out to us at CoachCRM, coachcrm.com. I'm Corey Bray. This is the Sales Management Podcast. See you next time.